0: This is a podcast from Partnerships for Wellbeing.
1: So is Starry Starry Night a fantastic painting because it's a fantastic painting or because we know Van Gogh was struggling with mental health issues? But when I stood in front of the painting in the museum one foot away, it looked like whoever painted it had ripped off the top of their skull and let their brain beam it, the picture alive.
0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Ways to Wellbeing. I'm Jess Sosinski. The voice you just heard belongs to Latch. He's a singer, a songwriter, a poet, and now the author of a witty, multidimensional novel for young adults entitled Langdomania. Larch hails from New York, where he co-founded the anti-folk music scene. But he says if you want to know more about that, just Google it. So instead, our conversation moved into more fruitful territory for a well-being podcast. When I asked him why some years ago, he decided to leave New York and move to Edinburgh, where he has now lived for the past 10 years. I have a hesitancy talking
1: about some of my personal stuff mm-hmm. because... Um, my main thing is my work, is my art, and a big part of what's happened with the digital age is uh, the artists have lost how they want people to experience their art. Um, an example would be, I would like people to experience my songs as part of albums, and I would like the order of the songs to be the order that I decide. And I would like even the spaces between tracks. Is it one second of silence or half a second? I want all those decisions to be made by me as the artist for how I want my audience to experience it. I think that the main thing that artists do is they make decisions. And a lot of those decisions are taken away from us. For instance, the decision about wanting people to discover things through an album. Well, it's Spotify now and it's all on shuffle and it's all directed by algorithms. So these things are taken away. And one, one example of that is, and, and, and I don't have an answer here, Jeff, um, but it's the idea of how much of an audience experience of art is influenced by their knowledge of what the artist went through. So is Starry Starry Night a fantastic painting because it's a fantastic painting or because we know Van Gogh was struggling with mental health issues. Now, I used to see Starry Starry Night in books and I've seen the pictures and all that. I know what it looks like. I'm like, yeah, Starry Starry Night, it's amazing. It's got the swirls in the sky. Yeah, wonderful. But when I stood in front of the painting in the museum one foot away, it looked like it had been painted two seconds ago It looked like whoever painted it had ripped off the top of their skull and let their brain beam the picture alive. I didn't have to know anything about Van Gogh. I didn't have to know a single thing about him to stand in front of that picture and have my consciousness opened up. It was amazing. I didn't know anything about the Sex Pistols when I first heard Submission. I was like, what the hell is that? I didn't know anything about the pretenders when I was driving in in LA and brass in pocket comes on the radio and I made the guy pull over to the side of the road so I could hear the song, you know? And then when you find out about the artist, it becomes a dicey situation because what if the artist is a jerk, you know, (laughs) what if who knows what, you know, sometimes knowing about the artist could give you insight or whatever, but also think about all of the wasted time Pete. Uh, uh, of learning about artists and the hagiography hey, of artists and stuff, that time could have been spent discovering new artists instead of, you know, finding out so-and-so's brother committed suicide. I don't need to know this shit. So when it comes to why I moved to Edinburgh, the original question, a lot of it had to do with family stuff and things going on, and I'm not sure about that. But it was about wanting to start something new, get to a new place, start fresh, uh, leave the stress of New York behind. And then the question is why Edinburgh? And there are mystical reasons for it and there are practical reasons for it. The more practical reason was I would always tour the UK and every time I toured Edinburgh, I was enchanted by the city and Basically, I'd be on tour the first time I ever played Edinburgh. I was driving up what I now know as the mound, and I saw Ramsay Garden, those white buildings on the cliff with the castle next to it. And this chill went through me, and I was like, Something's going on. There's something here. This is more than a deja vu, whatever. Then I got to the gig. It was La ba- Belle Angel before the fire, played that gig. A year later, on tour, blah, 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 going up this road. There's those houses on the cliff again. There's that castle. Here's this weird feeling I have again. What the hell is this place? So I walked around the city that time and and fell in love with the city. Um, Then I played the show. Then uh, Richard Melvin, a mutual friend of ours, um, did a uh, six-part series on American folk music with Dean Friedman, uh, curating it. And Dean got in touch with me and asked if he could do one of the episodes on anti folk. I was like, sure. So I met up with Dean and we had a great time. And so then when I came to play Edinburgh, I played at this uh, venue and, and Richard was there. And the venue, the venue was all decked out in Lower East Side, New York stuff. Pictures of Lou Reed, Edie Sedgwick, all this stuff. And I was like, this is, I went up to the club owner. I go, this is so cool that, you know, you've made me feel so at home. Thank you for doing this. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, you know, all the New York stuff and, and the Lou Reed and all this stuff. And, they, and the guy goes, oh, no, it always looks like this. We <laughs> based this club on you, like you inspired us. And that's why you're playing here tonight. Like sometimes it takes a while for the penny to drop for me. And I was like, oh, okay. So that put me in a really good mood. And at that set, I did a lot of storytelling uh, during the set. And Richard came up to me afterwards and asked to produce me for The Fringe. I'd never heard of The Fringe. And uh, he talked me into it. And he said, oh, by the way, you know, it's going to be stand-up. You could do that, right? And I said, yeah, sure. And I drove away. I forgot all about it. Then he called me like 4 months later and he's Karen Corrin of the Gilded Balloon wants to see how the show's coming along. I was like, "Show? What what? Those the show that you're doing at the Fringe, remember I'm producing your show?" I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, she wants to fly you over to see see what you're coming up with." And I'm like, "Is this a free round trip ticket to Edinburgh?" He said, "Yeah." I go, "Oh, the show's doing great." <laughs> <laughs> I had no show. So I flew <laughs> over. I uh, I uh, the next morning, uh, before doing the show, Richard's like, can you do a little bit of what the show is? You know, I can give you some notes. So I just played some songs and talked about them. And Richard said, that's fine. Just say New York a lot more. I love New York. So it was at the voodoo rooms. I got there. It was packed. It was all these comics who wanted to see who this guy they never heard of is getting this kind of treatment. And I agreed with them. And uh, But I got on stage, I told the first thing that came to my mind, it got a big laugh, the endorphins mixed with the adrenaline. I was off and running, and it was great. Karen offered me two shows a night, a one-man show, and she wanted me to bring the anti over. Mm-hmm. And uh, a year later, I moved here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've been living here ever since, so
0: about 10 years. I think the first time I saw you perform on stage was at the Fringe, um, probably one of the the late night venues, I'm not quite sure. And there's a story you told that I have told countless times to other people because I found it so inspirational. But you know the way memory is, so when I tell it back to you, you'll probably say, I never said any of that. (laughs) (laughs) But here is my memory of it. All right. You're on the stage, and as you say, you tell stories between, between numbers. And you tell the story about being quite young in in Brooklyn. Was it Brooklyn or Queens? I can't remember where you were living. Well, I was born in Brooklyn, but I
1: grew up in the suburbs of New York.
0: Right. And then I moved
1: back to the Lower East Side when I was like 17, 18.
0: So you're talking about uh, either in your teens or in your 20s. It's a Friday night and you're pacing the house and you can't wait to get out. And you're waiting for your friend to come and pick you up, I think, in these Volkswagen Beetle I'm not quite sure maybe maybe I've added that no no it was a green Volkswagen bug you got it great and uh, (laughs) and you you tell the story about pacing I can't wait to get out can't wait to get out and then you turn to the audience and you say you've got to get out of the house you've got thank you so much well done for coming along tonight you got out of the house and the bit I might have added and when I tell it to other people is the lesson which is nothing happens unless you get out of the house and I tell this to people and it's true and I found it you can sit and wait for things to happen excitement to happen for people to discover you or whatever but nothing happens unless you get out of the house meet people be influenced by people and look for opportunities say yes more often than no all of that uh and uh you really have you, know, you really have been an inspiration to me, Latch. So thank, oh, thank you very you. much for that. And I think we are, in, I remind myself, we are in an addition of ways to well-being. And I think that is a good well-being message for people as well, which is, you know, you've got to get off your backside now and again and, uh, and, and make life happen before it's too late.
1: The story, which, which song? Oh, that's, that's, uh, that story comes up in a song of mine called Kiss Loves You. Mm. Which is a sort of um, tribute to a friend of mine who loved the band Kiss, and um, I've I have like three different monologues I do on depending on the night and, and the feel of the audience. That one, the get out of the house one, is about yeah. So it was, it, it's more about your early teen years. Friday or Saturday night, looking out into the night, waiting for your friend to drive up, get you out of the house. Because people say rock and roll is about sex. They're right. They say it's about drugs. They're right. But first you got to get out of the house and rock and roll is about getting out of the goddamn house. You got (laughs) to say it like Jack Nicholson, the goddamn (laughs) house. And, uh, I remember looking out into the night waiting for Norman to drive up in his green Volkswagen Bug. And I'd hear my dad behind me, like I've heard, like every kid has ever heard their dad say those words, where are you going tonight? And I would reply like every kid throughout history. I'd put on my James Dean snarl and I'd say, nowhere. And then I'd hear my my dad say, what are you going to be doing out there? And I'd say, nothing, just praying for Norman to drive up and get me. I'm I'm saying every kid throughout history, 2,000 years ago, Jesus looking through the flaps of the tent, waiting for Judas to ride up on his donkey so they could see the Philistines play, just going, come on, Judas, get me out of the tent. I can't take the pressure. My mom thinks I'm God. And then that last piece of gravel on my driveway would illuminate in the norman's headlights and i'd be out of the house get into the volkswagen bug we'd peel out into the night liberated by rock and roll and really cool boots <laughs> <laughs> and it is about getting out of the house um but i have a i have a philosophy i've been working with uh for the last year can i tell you about that a little yeah, bit yeah of course And um, it ends with the idea of getting out of the house, but it doesn't start there. What it starts with is, I had this idea or revelation, I don't know, a year or two years ago. Because I've been dealing for the last, well, I don't believe in linear time, but I've been dealing with the last several years with a lot of grief and loss and uh, healing trauma and stuff. And um, this thought, this phrase came into my mind, which was, don't strive, arrive, came into my mind. I was like, oh, I like that, don't strive, arrive. What do I mean by that? And then I thought about the idea of arriving. And you would hear uh, celebrities in interviews, you know, to would be like, when did you know you arrived? Well, when I got the sequel, you know, or something like that. It's always something like that, you know. Why do we have to wait for outward validation to decide we've arrived? We could just decide it ourselves, where we are, wherever we are, just decide, you know what, I've arrived. And we could let go of this nonstop race to the grave to get something done in our heads that doesn't matter because you go to the grave anyway. Just decide you've arrived. And I wrote above my door at my of my flat, you've arrived. And I worked with that feeling for a while and it felt really good. Like it got rid of some of that uh, uh, acidic, burning, ambitious kind of you should be doing this feelings. Mm -hmm. And I just felt good with that. But I did that for a couple of months and I did some uh, mindful meditation and things associated with arriving. And I also study Taoism, uh, which is very much about that. And after a while, I was like, okay, you know what? I've arrived. What do I do now? Mm. And the word that came to me was cultivate. And so I spent some time cultivating, weeding the garden, doing the laundry, doing the dishes, doing the shopping, all those kinds of things. I wrote a song called um, Arrive, and I wrote a song called Always Meet Your Heroes, which is Uh, basically about you should meet your heroes because you're going to find out they're schlubs just like (laughs) (laughs) and it will take the pressure off you know (laughs) so i i was working on feeling like i arrived and working on cultivating and after a couple of months i was like well my flat looks great the garden looks great um i am well groomed what do i do now i've arrived i've cultivated i'm doing that and the third word that came to me was uh emanate and i was and that was about giving back shining your talent allowing yourself to be who you are don't hide your light under the bushel and that's when i started uh doing the weekly live streams during the pandemic i was doing a, a weekly live stream and that was me emanating and then doing my art writing my poetry, working on the novel, that's all under emanation. And then I thought I was done. I was like, I'm in a nice cycle here. Arrive, cultivate, emanate. This is working well for me. And when I would get negative thoughts or you should be doing this thought or fear or worry or those things, I could just say, wait a second. No, am I arriving, cultivating or emanating? And let's concentrate on that. But after a while, again, I got to a point where, okay, now what do I do? Is this it? And the word that came to me was adventure. And I tightened up when I heard that word because it made adrenaline go. And for people who've been through trauma, adrenaline's a tricky thing. Um, it, it, It causes the flight, fright, whatever that's called, reaction. And for me, that reaction was like pure terror. Uh, so even if it was something good that got me excited, it caused adrenaline and then behavioral uh, science kicks in and I would just react, you know, in terror. So when my mind said adventure, I was like, ah, I'm not sure. So then I added the word kind, kind adventure. And I was like, yeah, I, I could do some kind adventures. And that's what started getting me out of the house again. Uh, I'd say about a year and a half after the pandemic had, you know, isolated everybody. um, I started thinking about, well, I could do a kind adventure. And uh, I started, I I did a gig in Edinburgh at Sneaky Pete's, the rock club. And then I went to New York finally. And uh, because my dad had passed and we weren't able to have a memorial because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I finally was able to go to New York, go to the Memorial. I did a show at a really nice club and it was great, I had a great time. And uh, since then uh, I've been, the kind adventures I've been doing is I published Langdomania. And I just got back uh, a couple of weeks ago from my first tour in three years. I did a nine city tour of the UK. And the reason that we need to have these kind adventures Is what you said um, as artists, that's where the X factor kicks in. That's where the networking happens. You more will happen to your career as an artist by going out and seeing other artists and then hanging out afterwards than it will be by sitting in, you you know, increasing your Facebook presence. Um, So there's that X factor that's necessary. There's also fresh input you get as an artist. You don't get that just sitting in your house. You need to get out and see somebody trip over a dog on the sidewalk or something. You need input. And uh, the third thing is this idea of sort of the warrior of the tribe kind of thing is that you need to, I need to have a bit of that uh, tribal spiritual warrior going knowingly going into the unknown. That's very important. Knowingly going into the unknown not knowing why you are doing that, just knowing that you need to. Uh, because when you get back from that journey, you will understand why you took the journey. But you can't have that understanding until you've taken that journey. You need to go out there and come back with the hide of the buffalo or something and go, look, look, you know, so that you can, you can't feel triumphant if you don't do something that makes you feel triumphant. And so... That philosophy of mine is just boiled down to arrive, cultivate, emanate, have some kind adventures, rinse, and repeat.
0: Right. Well, let's talk about your uh, your book at least, um, which is one of your more latest projects. And what I love about this is is a kind of wish fulfillment element of it. You know, this is a a character who's twelve years old, army in an Ameri- in New York. I take it high school. Um, he comes across this kind of device, which I, in my head, imagine a bit like one of those stress reliever toys, only with buttons. Mm-hmm. And um, he soon discovers that it has seemingly magical properties, one of which is allows him to speak and understand different languages quite early on in the book, including Polish, which I was glad to see. Um, and then also it takes some into this other dimension as well. Yeah, well, the, the,
1: the, the title Langdemania comes from that, that toy object, which he decides can help, uh, or not decides, but it becomes, it it, it can help him understand languages and travel to dimension. So it's Lang for language, Mm -hmm. Dim for dimension. And that scene in the book, when he is in high school and he starts the servant chain letter yeah. and uh, or, or what would you call that a Ponzi scheme? Yeah, and has the creates the imaginary land of Langdmania to try to make this girl he likes uh, like him by yeah. handing over the scroll of servants. That comes from my actual junior high school experience. <laughs> That's uh that scene was originally so the previous book I wrote uh, called The Day I Went Insane. Is a anecdotal memoir, and then and that got finished in rough form, and a lot of what became uh, my BBC Four show, Latch Chronicles, is uh, from that unpublished book. Yeah. And um, when I decided to start writing Landomania, um, I just took that scene from my biography and made that uh, part of. You know, who, what Army was doing. So there's biographical elements uh, to that. So, in some ways, I've been writing it since junior high school in my head, but I start, I sat down to start writing it about a year after I moved here. Um, and then, you know, it, it, I had to also deal with a lot of stuff in life. So it was slow going, getting chances to write and stuff. And once I finished it or thought it was finished, the point from when I first thought it was finished to when it was published was probably another four years. Yeah. Because there was editing, flirtations with publishing companies and literary agents and what they wanted the book to be and me saying, no, that's not what the book is. And then all that kind of back and forth until it finally came out as an actual book one can hold in their hands. And I consider it finished uh, about a month ago.
0: Yeah, no, it's an absolute page-turner. There's just so many kind of scenes that make me kind of laugh and cringe at the same time. When he blurts out on the school bus that he does like Wendy and all goes silent and people realise, and then then his next thought is, I have to leave school. (laughs) And, and of course, that's exactly the way you think when you're 12 years old. You think this awful thing has happened to you. There's no going back. And uh, I'll have to start a new
1: life. Yeah, he's got he keeps a, a list in his head of his top ten most embarrassing moments. Yes. <laughs> and that shot to the top.
0: <laughs> I used to do that, but I'm still the list gets longer every year. If people want to read your book and your poetry, uh it's on Amazon and all the usual places, I take it. Yeah, so at the moment, uh Langdomania holds book to camera.
1: Um <laughs> is available Amazon. So whatever country you're in, Mm -hmm. you just go to your country's Amazon and you can order the book. And it's published by this wonderful company in Edinburgh called the book whisperers, Mm -hmm. which is this group of writers who had success themselves, especially with self-publishing. And they started the book whisperers to help people along the, that journey. And then they decided to start their own publishing company Mm -hmm. and, uh, they put out me. What, what's the reaction been to the book? Um, well, it's, it's very early days. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a great pull quote from Jeff Szynski, an absolute <laughs> page turner. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so far, you know, as far as people getting in touch with me, it's been wonderful, uh, but it's still very early days with that. And then my book of poems, The Thin Book of Poems, This is this third edition just came out. So the first two editions were black covers with white text. This is a white cover with black text. And I finally allowed them to use the uh, Dylan and Suzanne Vega
0: quotes on the front Mm -hmm. cover, which is nice. You mentioned uh, the quotes from Suzanne Vega and Bob Dylan, which reminds me, this is an odd question to ask you. Um, And I don't know what the reactions are going to be, but... You're kind of a big deal, right? (laughs) Maybe I'm a bit of a fanboy, but you're you're kind of a big deal. You're well known among some of these famous names you mentioned. Uh, And then you moved to Edinburgh. And I know you've done many things in Edinburgh and and, and hosted clubs and got involved in various enterprises. But I always get the feeling that the kind of, how can I put it, the cultural establishment don't quite realise what they have in their midst with you (laughs) you know thank god (laughs) thank loki (laughs) you you really mean that you do you like to keep a low profile
1: yeah i've got i've got something that bob dylan will never have anonymity Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also you know there's a there's a i mean i say that a bit facetiously but uh there's also this wonderful quote a uh, story and it, I don't know how apocryphal it is and or who the people are involved is, but paraphrasing the story is um, these two uh, writers are at like a fancy Hollywood party and uh, they're at a movie star's house and the movie star has a Picasso on the wall and he's got a colder mobile and you know the living room and he's got the heated pool and he's got all this. And one of the writers turns to the other and goes, this is so amazing. This guy he just has he he just is so amazing. Look at all this stuff he has. He has this Picasso and stuff. And the other writer says, Well, he's got I've got something he'll never have. And the other guy's like, What? And he says, Enough. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it's like at the end of the day, you could have everything, but but have you arrived? <laughs> 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 and uh I mean, I had those dreams, you know, and they drive you as a teen and in your 20s and stuff. You know, as a teenager, I had the Led Zeppelin poster on my wall and said, I'm not going to stop till I'm as a big rock star as, you know, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. And and you have to have that belief if you want to make it in that game. You know, you have to be Muhammad Ali and say, I am the best and you have to believe. And, you know, that's how you get there. But my journey took a different path. And there were times where I was resentful on that path. You know, I would look at somebody who would get a major label deal and then they'd be interviewed and they'd say, oh, you know, well, I was inspired by this guy Latch in New York. And every interviewer would go, who? (laughs) And then I'd be like, okay, well, why do they have that? And I mean, all that stuff, you know. But I I don't have that and haven't had that feeling in a long time the feeling that I have related to that is I want to write the next poem I want to write the next joke I want to write the next story the next song that's what I want to do and I want to take care of my son and my dog and I want to have kind adventures and that's what I want to do it's this rock star pop culture bingo that so many people play and say, well, I have to tick this box and this box. I need to be on the cover of this magazine. I need this. I need, that's all part of erroneous thinking of, I will be happy as soon as fill in the blank. I will be happy as soon as my partner stops being crazy. I will be happy as soon as I can stop drinking. I'll be happy as soon as I have a drink. I'll be happy as soon as I'm a star. As soon as I'm on Jimmy Kimmel, I will be happy. You could fill in that blank as much as you want. And seven seconds later, you are not happy. The way to do it is to sit under a tree and contemplate who the hell you are, what you want to do, what makes you happy. What makes me happy is waking up in the morning, writing a poem. Yeah, I'm not beholden to other people's ideas of what success is. I'm only beholden to my
0: idea of what success is. And um, uh, that's that, you know. Well, let's finish off by reminding people. Langdamania a funny, original, exciting, page-turner, full of adventures, wish-fulfillment, made me laugh, and maybe remember my um, school years angst as well. Um, it says on the, Latch is really quite magical. It says on the front from the Herald, and I would agree with that. Thank Latch, you so thank much. you very much for being a guest on Ways to Wellbeing. Thank you so much, Jeff. Ways to Wellbeing is produced in Inverness, Scotland, by Partnerships for Wellbeing, a registered charity. To find out more about our services, go to p4w.org.uk.